Good morning, church. Great, great to see you. It's been a wonderful experience so far, hasn't it? I want to uh, just say a word about uh, the mall gift wrap. You know, when we do the numbers on that, we have wrapped now over the years approximately 100,000 gifts at the mall to express the love of God in a very practical way. When you think about the, the total population of the community, in the next few years we're going to actually have touched everyone in the community just by that simple activity. So thanks for your volunteerism with that. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great mission. And I also wanted to mention last week's Faith Promise Card. We have these out at the information table as you leave today. If you didn't get yours turned in last week, you can grab one and get it filled out and turn it in there. Uh, we had a great response last week, first week to Faith Promise, and I know you want to be supportive of that. So the cards are available as you leave today. Thanks for bringing your Bibles. We're going to continue and actually finalize this series that we've been on on the subject of missions from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. And as, uh, as you're turning there, we have been talking about what in the world God is doing. And I mentioned last week that if you would give attention to last week's message and this week's message, that you will probably know more about what in the world God is doing than 90% of the people you know, Christians you know, certainly. And it's right for the people of God to have a global view of the world. It's right for Christian people to know what in the world God is doing. Because how in the world will you know what to do if you don't know what in the world God is up to? You will do the best with your life if you will discover the will of God for your time, your generation, and then give yourself to that. Fling yourself into it. And so we are attempting to answer important questions about what God is doing. Nehemiah's reference today is, of course, this famous Old Testament character who God used to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This came in approximately the 5th century B.C., 500 years or so before Jesus lived. And they were coming out of a Babylonian captivity period, decades of this captivity, a post-captivity era. Now Nehemiah rebuilds the walls as Jews are coming back to Jerusalem. We also know that he had a partner with him, a priest named Ezra, so they not only revived the city structurally, physically, but they revived the people spiritually by reintroducing the Word of God. And so we, we introduce uh, this uh, text to you from that context. Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm going to re begin reading at verse 5 through 12. As you're able, would you please stand to hear God's Word? Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Now, there are, there are questions from time to time about why we stand to hear the reading of the Scripture. It's because of this reference. We don't know that the people were prompted to stand, but it had been decades since they had heard the Word of God, and it so moved them, and they were so filled with reverence and awe at the reading of the Scripture that they stood as a, as a memorial, as an honor to the authority of God's Word. And so it has been our practice all these years based on this particular moment. Verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Mesaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, and Pelaiah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. 
Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and spend and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. May God inspire us through this powerful passage. You may be seated. One of the abiding values of God's word is that we're privileged to see the true people of God being the, being the people of God in a wide variety of situations. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that the Bible doesn't hedge on real life. We see people in these wonderful, glorious moments of great victory and anticipation and hope. And we also find the people of God in these very discouraging and disappointing and perplexing times. Uh, we see them dancing, for example, on the shores of the Red Sea with tambourines in their hands. This is right after the, the armies of Pharaoh have been swamped in the Red Sea and Miriam leading this wonderful worship experience, the sister of Moses. And they said, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. God does deliver his people. And we see them standing after three days of consecration in holy fear and breathtaking awe in the presence of God as smoke and thunder and lightning goes up from Mount Sinai. The earth itself trembled as God spoke the covenant to Moses. People were awestruck by this moment. God does speak to his people. But not just earthquakes on Mount Sinai or corporate celebrations. The word of God also invites us into those intimate moments between God and his people. We see an example of that when God calls a young boy named Samuel in the middle of the night the voice of God quietly, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel saying, here I am, Lord. God calls his people. He delivers his people. He speaks to his people. God calls his people. And who can forget that high and holy moment when the great prophet Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up his train filling the temple and the angels uh, crying out on either side of the, of, the, of the throne itself, holy, 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 and ultimately these seraphim uh, and God asking the question, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. God calls his people. We're also allowed to see the people of God in difficult times. The people of God have to be the people of God, not only the mighty days of Moses, but also during the lean days. For example, in the time of Eli, when as 1 Samuel 3.1 says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Sobering phrase, isn't it? Every man or woman of God longs to live and minister in those times when the glory of the Lord fills the temple and the train of his robe is there and these great, mighty, magnificent sons of God, these seraphim, six-winged creatures with two of their wings, they cover their face. With two of their wings, they cover their feet. With two, they're flying. They're, they're shouting at each other in antiphonal response, holy, 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 Lord of hosts. And the whole threshold of the temple shaking, the glory of God fills the place. Everybody wants to live and minister in that context. Everybody does. But some of us are chosen to live in a time when the ark of God has been captured by the Philistines. And a woman names her child Ichabod because the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. 
Some people lived in the time of Solomon when the temple was the splendor of the world and a wise king sat on the throne. But some, like Jeremiah, lived and were called to be faithful to God even when they sat on the hillside overlooking Jerusalem while the city burned to the ground and they cried out from their hearts, O daughter of Jerusalem, your wound is as deep as the sea. We love to live in the exclamation marks of time, don't we? We don't like to live in the question marks of life. The exclamation mark is sure and it's straight and the message is clear and the question mark, though, is crooked and twisted and sometimes it's hard to see around it. Sometimes we don't know how to interpret the times we're in. We all know what it's like to look out on what we think are the promises of God, even as we hear some declare people, the same people looking at the same picture of history and the same moment of opportunity and some of them saying, look, it's a land filled with great opportunity, a land flowing with milk and honey. And people at the same time with the same vantage point saying, wait a minute, this is a dangerous time. The land is filled with giants. We dare not attempt it. These are perplexing days. Brothers and sisters, we must learn to recognize the times that we're in. I'll remind you of these four questions that we are attempting to answer in these series of messages. Rehearse them last week. I'll just bring them up for your memory. First, what in the world is God doing? Where is he doing it? Who is yet to be reached? And how can we be part of that? What in the world is God doing? Where is he doing it? Who is yet to be reached? How can we be personally involved? Because I believe, as you know, you've heard me say this, every Christian, every church should be intentionally and strategically involved in fulfilling the Great Commission. It is our mission. Keeping the faith is half of our mission. Sharing the faith, making disciples of Jesus Christ is the other part of our mission. And every Christian should be involved in that. So in that, in that setting and with that keeping in mind, let me just offer these three thoughts. First, understanding the times. We are living on one of the greatest seams of our history. The seam between what we are describing as modernity and postmodernity. The seam between Christendom and post-Christendom. The seam between a predominantly Western Christianity and the emergence of a post-Western Christianity. We live in a post-communist, post-Christian, post-denominational, post-Western, post-enlightenment, and post-modern world. We don't even know what to call the new epic we are entering. We just know we are post everything that we have known. We know what is behind us, but we are unable, unable to predict what is ahead. We live in a time of uncertainty, of disillusionment, of perplexity. We're living in the gap between what is behind us and what is before us. We're living in the seam, this crack, if you will, this space, this span of time. God knows how long it will last, but we're living in this moment when everything is post because we can't predict what's going to happen next. It's an unusual time. The most important development in the 20th century church of Jesus Christ, the most important development in the last hundred years has been the dramatic rise of the church outside of the Western world. As Protestants, we have never known a church which was not predominantly white and Western. When William Carey, the, the father of the modern missionary movement, left for India out of Europe in 1793, only 1% of the entire world's Christians lived outside of the Western world, Western Europe and North America. Um, 
even by 1900, only 10% of the world's Christians were not white and Western. But today, in the early days of the 21st century, in the year 2013, follow this, 67% of all Christians are non-white and live outside of the Western world. The emergence of new centers of Christian vibrancy from Latin America to Africa to parts of Asia, including China and India and Korea, is the most important spiritual evidence of our times. It is an amazing moment in history. These are days that the saints of God have longed to see, and we are privileged to see them. It is a move of God of historic proportions, and we are alive in this moment. And of course, those of us in the Western world, we must continue to engage the world, especially for us Methodists, remembering the words of our father John, John Wesley, when he said that the world is our parish. And so for many, many Americans, and for many, many years of our lives, we are old enough now as baby boomers and elders in our culture, the older members of our, of our culture, we have grown up and have been privileged to live in the modern day equivalent of the promised land, a land full of spiritual milk and honey, a land where steepled towns rang their church bells and faithful gathered to hear God's word. In the town I grew up in, the church bells rang every Sunday morning. And people got out of their beds and they went together as families to the house of God. That's how I grew up. That's how I was raised. And it was true for many of us in our, in our community who are of the older generation. It was a society where Judeo-Christian ethics were normatively embraced by the society at large. I mentioned last week in the 40s and 50s, culture said to people, look, you know right from wrong, now go do what's right. But in the 60s and 70s, this revolution happened, and people then said, look, I'm going to do, do whatever I want. I don't care what you think. Now in the 2000s, we, the culture says, look, I'm going to do anything I choose to do, and I expect you to embrace it and to endorse it. And so you can see how this slow and imperceptive at first, but now clearly identified that we are no longer in the promised land. You could say that those of us who embrace a Judeo-Christian ethic in our culture, we're living in Babylonian exile. We identify with Nehemiah. We had been preparing to sing the songs of Zion, and instead, just as the Israelites did, we were hanging up our harps and singing laments. Now, let me just Remind you, for those of you who are invested in singing the laments, because there are a lot of voices in our culture right now who are lamenting the state of affairs, but a lament is a passionate expression of disappointment or grief or sorrow. And I'm not actually lamenting that we are in a time of lament. Lament is actually a good thing historically. Lament is like an extended season of Lent. It can be painful, but it's very beneficial. When people actually find themselves lamenting and sorrowful and grieving and disappointed over the state of affairs and, and, the, and the separation from Judeo values, what that means is that people are getting in touch again with their sense of need for God. So lament is God uh, good. Lament is good because lament is the mother of hope. And it's a wonderful thing in that context. What we don't want to do is to pretend that the landscape has not changed and we fail to recognize the signs of the times. I want to remind you what the last verse of the Old Testament is, the last words of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, and it is, I quote, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Wow, what an ending. 
Thank you, Malachi, for that summary statement. <laughs> Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. It's not the kind of message that you'd put on, on billboards or hang on your refrigerator or keep in your pocket you know, or in your Bible as, an, as today's promise. Malachi leaves us with an unresolved note, one that went unresolved for 400 years before we turn the page to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and we hear Gabriel showing up with some really, 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 really good news. But there are 400 years, four centuries past, the intertestamental period is 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. Our text this morning reminds us that Nehemiah lived in a similar kind of time. We asked the question, what was it like to live in the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments? And Nehemiah is actually living in a time where there's a gap, there's a seam created by the movements of human events and God's work. Nehemiah was post-exile. The exile in Babylonia was behind him and the nation of Israel, but this is pre-Messiah. And so they, they weren't anticipating Messiah at this point, but, but the exile was behind them, so they're living in this long night of exile behind them, the Jews returning, but still there's no Messiah. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down, hope seemed dim, and most Jews at the time believed that their best days were behind them. I wonder how many conversations like that have been had by Christian people in today's culture. Our best days are behind us. We can only imagine the conversations that took place around their dinner tables. It was a time of rebuilding, a time to rekindle hope, and we don't know what kind of books might have been published at the time. You know, what if on the eighth day God suddenly declared, let there be Zondervan or InterVarsity Press, and suddenly we have these book publishers, uh, and Moses, Moses could have written a bestseller, I'm sure. He might have called it How to Pass Through Your Red Sea, or a follow-up companion book, The Purpose Driven Nation. This would come with a companion study guide, of course. Couldn't be without that. Nehemiah has given us a book, too. Uh, we just call it Nehemiah. Uh, but if it was sold as a separate book, and it might appear under the title Living as a Jew in a Post-Judaism World or Life Amidst the Rubble. Because in this book, Nehemiah helps us to understand what it means to be faithful to God and the call of God in a post-Jewish, post-covenant, post-temple world. And we identify with that post-business because our world is post-Christian and post-modern and post-everything else that we have known. Nehemiah, perhaps more than any other Old Testament saint, would understand the world we inhabit. Nehemiah had his cultural and philosophical counterparts. They're named and listed. His enemies are actually in the Bible. Their names were Sanballat and Tobiah. Today, we're j they're just known by different names like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. So Nehemiah helps us, and we, we get through his eyes a better perspective, a better glimpse of our own times. To understand our times, we're living in the seam. We're living in the gap. Here's my second thought, and that is the need for those of us with a Judeo-Christian worldview having been pushed to the margins of our culture now, we must assume a prophetic role. Let me explain. Nehemiah also lived in a world when even the people of God did not know their own scriptures. That's why there was such an emotional response when Ezra finally starts reading the scripture in front of the people and they, they fall down on the ground, and they begin to weep. And Nehemiah has to finally tell them, look, this isn't a day for grieving and mourning. This, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, straighten yourself up, and let's celebrate. This is good news. 
but the people were deeply touched because they were so far separated from the word of God. Christian people in America don't know the Bible. Biblical illiteracy is rampant, even in the ranks of church people. And it's not good. It's not a good thing. And the people in Nehemiah's day had forgotten the mighty acts of God. I love uh, what Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann once said, and I want to put this on the screen so you can appreciate it. He once said, the chief function of a prophet is to call people to remember, to remember the mighty acts of God. And I think Nehemiah understood that. We mainly remember Nehemiah as the one who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, but chapter 8, our text today, tells us about something else he rebuilt. He rebuilt focus on the word of God. The faithful promotion of the word of God had also become part of the rubble, not just the temple and the walls. And the Bible says that Nehemiah had a great platform built for this occasion. In Nehemiah 8.4, we're told that a high wooden platform was built for the occasion. And you read that and you go, well, they just built a platform, they built a stage. I read that and I, and I read he rebuilt the pulpit, reestablished the pulpit. The great priest of God, Ezra, was called upon to deliver the word of God in uncertain times. He opens the word of God and begins to read. Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest, appointed 13 Levites to instruct the people in the law while it was being read. We don't find a list of megastars here in this list of 13 Levites, which I read for us this morning, or tempted to read. This isn't a group of 5th century BC versions of Christian celebrities. These are not household names. They weren't household names then, and they're not now. But we find a list of 13 Levites whose names you've never heard of, probably until this morning. And you might be curious as to why I attempted to read those names. Let me tell you why I read those names. In order to honor them, because they were nobodies. They're just, they're just some boys, some Levites, who were willing to help explain the law to people. And what it says in verse 8 of our text today, I'll put this on the screen because this is quite significant. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. What a great gift that is. It's a great gift to us. And isn't it encouraging when you hear someone read the scripture and then explain what it means? It's, it's so helpful to me personally. I appreciate that very much. And this is what we need today. The church quietly producing Banases and Sherebiahs and Jamins and Hodiahs and Kalitas and Azariahs. This is the need of the hour. Men and women called to faithfully teach people the word of God in the midst of the rubble. Yeah, people unafraid to tackle the real questions of our day and to tackle those questions with care and diligence. Two weeks ago in Orlando, I, I met David Kinneman. David is... Uh, the president of the Barna Group. He's a 40-year-old scholar who has just uh, written a book entitled, You Lost Me. And in the book, you, you Lost Me, he chronicles this unusual exodus that is taking place right now among emergent culture, younger age groups within our culture, this exodus from the church. And he categorizes them and, and seeks to understand why they're leaving the church. And it's a very fascinating study. And I spent a couple of days with David and got personally acquainted, and, and it, was, it was helpful for my perspective. 
And what we're, what we're coming to terms with is that there is a distinct difference between the oldest members of our culture, the elders and the boomers, the oldest people in the room today, you're, you're part of the elder generation now, you're the oldest living Americans, and you have traditional values. You were raised when the church bells rang in your neighborhood every Sunday morning, and most people like you went to church. It's what you did, and the culture embraced Judeo-Christian values. And much of my culture, the, the boomers, are also traditionalists. I confess that I am a traditionalist. I see the world through a traditional set of values. But there, there is a, an in-between group of Americans right now and Westerners who are, who are a blend of tradition and this new progressive kind of attitudes about life and worldview. And so they're kind of mixed. You folks who are late 30s and in your 40s right now, half of you lean one way or the other, half lean the other. And then there is this emerging culture, mosaics and millennials, and there's, and there's even a younger group of them now. You need to understand, for those of us who are traditionalists and part of the boomer elder generations, you've you got to remember, these, these, these folks weren't even born until 1985. I mean, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK, and many of us who were alive at that time relived that very poignantly. You know, it, it's, for, for you young people in the room, a person like me, I'm 58 years old, I know exactly where I was, where I was sitting. I can describe the room that I was in when I heard of the assassination. You know, it's like Columbine for one generation. It's like Pearl Harbor, 9-11 for most of us. These are, these are moments that mark us, and they mark us generationally. <laughs> but these young people that are born right now, they, they don't remember any of that. There are folks now emerging into the culture who don't remember 9-11. And their worldview is completely different. And the questions they're asking are not modern kinds of questions through the lens of a worldview that embraces Judeo-Christian value. And we have to be sensitive to that because keeping the faith is half of our mission, but sharing the faith, passing on the faith to the next generation is the rest of our mission. And so it's incumbent upon us to try to sensitively and carefully engage these young people because giving modern answers to postmodern questions will not work. And so here's what we're, here's what we're, we're beginning to hear from, from this emerging generation. Why do you keep giving us modern answers to these postmodern questions? People are asking, why is the church so seemingly out of step with questions of human sexuality and reluctant to tackle the rift or apparent rift created by science regarding origins of the universe and evolutionary theory? Why so overprotective? These are their, their words now. Why so overprotective and repressive and exclusive? Why so little tolerance for doubt? It's good questions. If ever there was a time to lovingly and thoughtfully read the scriptures and teach them faithfully, it's today. And so I'm just, I'm appealing to every one of us who are followers of Jesus that regardless of our generational profile and worldview, that we should assume in a culture that has pushed Judeo-Christian worldview to the margins, we must assume a prophetic role. And the primary function of a prophet is to remember the mighty acts of God. And that means that we remember the mighty acts of God contained in his scripture, contained in the truth of God's word, and so we embrace the mighty acts of God from history, but we also remember the mighty acts of God that have occurred in our lives, 
Because once we were lost, but now we were found. Once we were blind, but now we see we have a story to tell of the mighty acts and work of God and his Holy Spirit in our lives. And so the call of God on all of us in a moment like this, the seam of history, when we know what's behind us and we're not sure what's in front of us, is to assume the prophetic role, remembering the mighty acts of God and telling our story to anyone who will listen. Because there's power in the story. And God alone can transform our life. And he is our hope. And that leads me to this last thought this morning, and that is to embrace this time as a time of hope. I used this as the last point last week in the message, and I want to do it again today. From Nehemiah, we learn how they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. A trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Now, if you could have gone to Jerusalem in those days and walked around those workers and saw them with a trowel in one hand rebuilding the wall and a sword in the other and asked them, which would you prefer to be doing? Carrying a sword or carrying a tambourine? They'd say, look, we wish that the whole culture was with us and supportive of what we're doing and blessing us as we go so that we could celebrate the glory of God as we rebuild this wall. But that's not the world we live in. We live in a hostile environment where people impugn us and disparage us and castigate us and, and call us foolish and ignorant. And that's the nature of the culture we, we live in. Well, while we'd rather have a trowel and a tambourine, we have to otherwise carry a trowel and a sword because that's the nature of our culture. And so we too have to understand, just as they did, that this is a time of rebuilding, a time of remembering the great acts of God and a time of hope. Let me just go back in history. 15th, uh, 15th century, John Huss, a man of God who revered the word of God and so much passion with regard to that, that the church and, and culture said, we, we can't tolerate you, and so they martyred him. And while John Huss was perishing in the flames, he reportedly declared that in a hundred years, God would raise up a man whose calls for reform could not be suppressed. And indeed, 102 years later, a young monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Most of us, many of us who understand the Protestant Reformation that occurred on the heels of Luther's positioning, would have loved to have been alive in Western Europe during the Protestant Reformation. It was a time of unusual revival and renewal. But what of those dear Christians who lived in the hundred years between John Huss and Martin Luther? What about those men and women who had to live in the seam between what was and what was to become? Those who lived in the gap, which is where we're living right now. What about those men and women? I think they had to understand the times they were in and they had to assume a prophetic role. Keep the faith and tell the stories of God. Remember the mighty acts of God and, and, and maintain the faith. Keep the faith until God breaks through. One of the most remarkable gifts of our time is that we live at a time of the simultaneous advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and again, at the same time, the, the recession of the gospel, the contraction of the gospel, all of which is based on where you happen to live in the world. It's a fascinating time. For example, in Latin America, it, Latin America is experiencing the Reformation. 500 years late, but it has finally come. If you really would like to live in the modern-day form of the Reformation of 16th century Europe, make your way to 21st century Brazil. 
Listen to this. The growth of the church in Latin America is four times the birth rate. Amazing. It's, re it's revival in the streets. It's amazing what God is doing in Latin America. And we thank God for it. It's, it's, it's just a, a historic. Africa is emerging the sunrise of a new movement of God with healing and deliverance and rejoicing in the streets. Today, in places like Kenya and Nigeria, there will be literally, there will be dancing in the streets of the cities of Kenya and Nigeria. People with tambourines and, and beating the drums and the people of God worshiping Almighty God in Jesus' name. In Africa, the Red Sea is parting. The dead are being raised. The good news is being preached to the poor. It's harvest time in Africa. In 1900, only 3% of, of, of Africa was Christian. Today, 52% of Africa has been Christianized. 400 million people have come into the, into the kingdom of God in the last 100 years in Africa. Glory to God. It's awesome, amazing activity of God's spirit. India is coming to the backside of a long night in the wilderness. It's still long and it's still hot days. But listen, there are days when you can capture a glimmer of hope on the faces of God's people in India. The walls of Jericho still surrounding the world of Hinduism seem impregnable. But listen to me carefully. The people of God in India are already starting their march. And it's not going to be very many generations. And God knows, maybe again in our lifetime, so much has happened in our lifetime already, we may see the walls of Hinduism come crumbling down in India. And the great trumpet blast may not be too far away, vindicating ultimately the tireless, tireless labors of people like the Seaman family and E. Stanley Jones and Mark Buntain and Wascom Pickett and Peter Pereira and Sam Camuelson and so many more who've given their lives for the gospel's sake in India. And I'd be remiss without being hopeful about Central Asia and Kazakhstan in particular. When we began our initiatives in Kazakhstan 17 years ago, there were less than 1,000 believers in the entire country. Most of them clustered and kind of hunkered down in two of the major cities. Today, we acknowledge being part of a movement that gives witness and support to tens of thousands of believers throughout Kazakhstan. By intentionally, strategically, sacrificially, and lovingly offering Christ to the precious souls of Kazakhstan, we are being used of God to make a difference for his namesake. And when, when it's all said and done, friends, mark this down. Union Chapel and our partner churches will be noted for the, for the part that we played in, in offering the gospel in Central Asia. And that's a cool thing. We'll lay our trophies at his feet. And we will remind Jesus that he must receive the reward of his suffering. Do you understand the sign of our times? Are you willing to assume a prophetic role by telling your story and sharing the word of God? Are you filled with hope? In the next generation, we will need to know what to do when you have thousands and thousands of new believers who are pouring into the churches, depending on where you live in the world. We will also need to know how to be a prophet and face a culture where thousands are leaving the church every day. Note the contrast. 24,000 new believers have come to Christ in Africa just since yesterday morning. 24,000 per day 
in Africa are coming to a meaningful faith in Jesus Christ. 9,000 fewer believers than yesterday in the Western world. 9,000 people have left the faith, Western Europe and North America. 1,600 new churches have been planted this past week in Latin America. 1,600 in the last week. And at the same time, five new books on atheism have been published and distributed in the Western cultures. The immigrant churches of America are continuing to explode with growth. More people, listen, more people have come to Christ in Boston, Massachusetts in the last 30 years than during the entire Great Awakening. But it's not widely known because it's a movement among immigrants. Let, get your mind around that. More people have come to Jesus Christ in Boston in the last 30 years than during the Great Awakening. But it's among immigrants. More people will worship Jesus Christ this Sunday, today, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in a language other than English than in English. These are amazing times. We're living in the seam. We're living in the gap. Union Chapel is going to continue to rise to the occasion and do the things which must be done in all of these varied situations. And we're going to remember the fundamentals. We're going to carefully instruct the people in the Word of God. We're going to keep Christ in the center of all of it. We're going to help people know Jesus Christ, to grow in their relationship with Him, and to go telling others about Him. And that's what we're going to do. There's a man who's influenced my life. I want him to influence yours. His name is Henry Clay Morrison. H.C. Morrison was president of Asbury College, and in 1923, at the age of 66, he went across the street in Wilmore, Kentucky, and he founded Asbury Theological Seminary. At the age of 66, he was dissuaded by many voices saying, H.C., you're 66, your retirement age, it's time for you to settle down, take it easy, play some golf. It's not the time of life to go starting a new institution with the crushing weight of responsibility that comes with trying to do something like that. And yet H.C. Morrison persisted. He founded the seminary at the age of 66 and served as its president for the next 19 years until his death. Williams Jennings Bryan, who was a contemporary of H.C. Morrison in American culture at the time, famous for other uh, historic moments in our country's history. William Jennings Bryan said of H.C. Morrison, quote, he was the greatest pulpit orator on the entire American continent. Coming from William Jennings Bryan, that's, that's quite a commendation. H.C. Morrison literally died with his boots on. He was very popular and was a, was a revivalist preacher around the country and would preach in churches and, and uh, in big camp meetings in the day. And he was in a church in Tennessee in his late 80s, and he was feeble and weak, wobbly, but he insisted on preaching. And he preached a couple of nights in a particular church, told the pastor he wasn't sure he could go much further. They had planned the whole week and beyond for him to preach. And H.C. Morrison, resting in the church-owned parsonage there, and as it came to the hour where it was time for him to go back and preach the next night for the services, he put on his preaching suit and he sat down in a chair to rest, and the pastor came in to collect him and found him dead. Literally died with his boots on. Died with his preaching suit on. Amazing, amazing human being. H.C. Morrison, earlier in his life, went on a 
mission trip to China to preach the gospel there because of his long association with the mission agency called OMS, Oriental Mission Society. Perhaps you're familiar with OMS, um, centered right here in Indianapolis, Indiana. And he was on this one occasion in China on his return home on a ship to New York Harbor and happened to be on the same ship as Teddy Roosevelt, who's the president of the United States. When they arrived in the harbor, H.C. Morrison reflected about this later in his writings. He said there was a big band playing to greet Roosevelt. People were setting off fireworks and, you know, it was a big deal. Presidents arrived back, back home. Morrison said he looked around and felt lonely because there was no one there to meet him. And he thought to himself, why hasn't anyone come to meet me? And he reported later that the Lord spoke to his heart in that moment. And he said, H.C., the reason no one's here to meet you today is because you're not home yet. And we think that, among other things, is why Morrison never retired. He knew that there was work to be done, a vision to be cast, a mission to be fulfilled. And it was a global mission, a global worldview. And I want to end this little series and this message in particular with this challenge to young people. If you're 35 years old or younger, let me talk to you for a minute right now. I want to I challenge you today by referencing one of my favorite quotes. It comes from Francis Xavier. This quote influenced my life as a young person, and perhaps it will influence yours. And the quote is simply this. Give up your small ambitions and preach the gospel of Christ. Give up your small ambitions and preach the gospel of Christ. I want to challenge you today. I began this sermon by saying that God still speaks to his people and God still delivers his people and God still calls his people. And God will place his hand on your life. And he will, he will call you to an important work. And I challenge you, if you're a young person in the room today, to lay aside whatever small ambitions you may have for your future and consider whether or not God has placed his hand on your life to make a difference in our world, to assume a prophetic role, living as a faithful follower of Jesus in the seam of history, and whether or not he might raise you up to remember his mighty deeds and to speak a word of honor for his namesake. And frankly, it doesn't really matter what vocation you take up, what career you choose. The question is, will you remember the mighty acts of God, the mighty works of God, both in history and in your own life, in anticipation of the eternal hope that he alone provides? So understand the times, friends, and remember this. The cross was still the cross, though jeering mockers stood at the foot of it. When Jesus Christ literally, physically hung on the cross of Calvary, the crowd there that day were mocking and jeering. What a fool. What a mistake. What a waste. What a mess. And friends, there are still those who mock and jeer in our culture today. And those of us who embrace Judeo-Christian values, people are going to say, look, how foolish, how ignorant, how how hateful, how narrow-minded, how awful you are. But let me just remind you, 
that when they mocked and jeered Jesus 2,000 years ago, with hindsight, we have clarity. That was the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God, which now is the hope and power of our salvation. And so we know that they mocked and jeered the cross then, and they'll mock and jeer the cross now. But those of us who understand the times and are willing to assume a courageous posture as prophets in such a time, we alone understand ultimately the meaning of hope, which sustains us every day and gives us a future together with him. And so here we are in this seam of history. What in the world is God doing? He's doing a lot. Where is he doing it? Lots of places, including right here and right where you are. Who is yet reached? We can identify those folks. And some of them are in Central Asia. What can we do? We're going to join in. And we're going to continue to faithfully follow him wherever he leads us as he gives us grace and courage. Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful example that Nehemiah and Ezra and the others set for us. Lord, men and women faithful in the seam of history, this shifting time of uncertainty and perplexity and confusion. Lord, may we be a people found faithful in these days, aware of the times in which we live, willing to take up the mantle of a prophet, understanding and remembering the great works that you have accomplished and will continue to do. And Lord, in all of that, as we focus on Christ, keeping him at the center of our heart, at the center of our faith, the center of our message, therein lies our hope. Give us hope today, we pray. Now bless us as we discern your sense of call on our lives, whatever that might be today. Help us to say yes and to follow you. In Jesus' name. And the people said,